Kia ora. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, Waituhi or Tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2019 event. The results of the 2017 New Zealand election campaign reverberated around the world, changing the course of this country's politics and ringing in intergenerational change. Political scientist Stephen Levine's book Stardust and Substance is an examination of legacy, politics and promise, recounting perspectives from key campaign players, including now Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, who joins Toby Manhire for an insider's conversation on these remarkable weeks in our history. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Wonderful ovation for the Minister of Arts, Culture and Heritage. No my hi my. Welcome to uh, the Auckland Writers' Festival. My name is Toby Manhai and it is very early in the morning. Uh, and um, probably less early in the morning for the Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, who has more early mornings than us and has just flown in from Paris to be with us. Thank that you. Makes- That sounds much more exotic than it currently feels. <laughs> our international guest, Jacinda Ardern. Um, our text for the day is this book here, uh, Stardust and Substance. It's edited by Stephen Levine, who is here with us today. Um, and it's the latest in a, those of you who aren't familiar with it, it's a sort of fantastic New Zealand tradition of the last 30 years, I think, um, in which after the after an election, the, the people involved, uh, the politicians and others, gather for a conference at the Beehive. That's great, yeah. And give speeches yes. and sort of reflect, kind of sort of stare back at the recent past and do the first draft, I guess. That's correct. And when you write your piece, you, you write it as a, as, as a speech. And so mm. uh, for anyone who, who reads the chapter, it, it may read a little bit like something that you would be sharing to... Uh, a very earnest room of people. There was actually, I think, I think Stephen... Because let's be honest, if you go to a three-day conference to pick apart a general election, you probably have a reasonable level of earnestness. That's fair. Oh. Um, I think, in fact, the, the book originally was going to be edited by Stephen Levine and John Johansson, but John Johansson little compromise there now. Became um, chief, of staff. chief of staff to Winston Peters. That's correct. Who's um, the Deputy Prime Minister, I believe. That is also correct. <laughs> I've done a lot of research for this session, as you can tell. It's You're clearly little... not one of those earnest <laughs> people I was talking about. <laughs> um, uh, Stephen is here and is going to sign books, um, and we'll be happy to have selfies with you too. Jacinda Ardern has to dash away, um, there's a bit of a scheduling issue, and she has to dash away almost immediately afterwards, um, go to a pre-budget announcement in South Auckland. Correct. On domestic violence. That is right. So we'll keep... I don't believe we'd actually announce that, but till now, but you've, <laughs> you've heard, it, heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> Um, <laughs> my first question for you is, have you called Scott Morrison yet? 
Ah, oh, it's a good question. I'm actually, I sent him, uh, I sent him a text, uh, but I haven't had a chance to call, so. Uh, you can do it now. Well, I just, I, I <laughs> when I went to bed, the final results weren't in. Yeah. Um, when Neve woke up at 4.30, um, <laughs> uh, the final results were in, and I thought, oh, a bit of a line call as to what, what situation yeah. it would be now. I'll send a text and, and give him a call later. So, yeah, I have. It's, did you watch that election closely over there in Australia? Uh, I, I actually had intended to, I only got in yesterday morning, so I had intended to have a, a, a nice early night, but then I started watching ABC and uh, I just couldn't tear myself away. So yeah, I, I did watch it closely. Um, and I mean, I was trying to ask you about this before, and obviously it's difficult for you, you can't be a party leader when you yeah. Something like that. Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting. It's an interesting, if if not somewhat artificial, tran kind of a, a transition that you make when you become prime minister. You're allowed to be politically, domestically, but you then lose your ability to be politically internationally, and, and that's just as what it is because you have to be, you know, New Zealand's number one diplomat on behalf of New Zealand's interests, and that means you work with everyone, uh, and, and that's, that's my role now, and so I'm offered commiserations to Bill Shorten, congratulations to Scott Morrison, and, and we just keep on rolling. Did you see that uh, Bill Shorten, the Labour, Labour leader, unsuccessful mm -hmm. Labour leader there, was um, using tweets with the hashtag, let's do this, in the last few oh, days? Oh, I didn't weeks. notice that, actually. I did not notice didn't that. Didn't work, fam. <laughs> No. <laughs> I know you're not blaming me at this point. Well, I did, I did, did, did what I thought. I wondered whether it might be a sort of, a bit of an M&M moment and you might sue them for taking your... <laughs> um. <laughs> My second question is, what are you reading at the moment at the Writers' Festival? Do you ever read? Do you get a chance to read? I, I read an enormous um, amount, uh, but it would, be, it would be incorrect for me to describe it as for recreation. Mm. Uh, at the moment, I've been reading, I've been reading the latest um, issue of, I think it's called the Journal of Psychology, uh, because it's dedicated to the aftermath of the 15th of March. And so some of the writing in there um, is, is hugely interesting. Uh, that, so those are the kinds of, of things I read outside of cabinet paper, papers now, are things that can inform policy. Um, because at my, at my heart of hearts, I'm a complete policy wonk. Um, Not even heart of hearts, I'm just, it's obvious, isn't it? <laughs> Big old nerd. <laughs> Big old nerd. Um, in, the, in the piece, in the, your chapter in the book, you write, I have to admit the large chunks of that period remain a bit of a blur and part of what, what I would call PET, post-election trauma. And now we're, what, 20 months on or something like that. Is it still a blur? And how's that trauma coming along? Sort of like I've replaced it with new trauma. And <laughs> do you know, I, think, I don't think that's unique to me, I, I spent a, a whirlwind year, a privileged year, working for Helen Clark uh, in the 2000 and, uh, leading up to the 2005 campaign. And I remember in the aftermath, we had a little morning tea with all of the staff, 
And I have this very vivid image. It was quite, quite soon after, like maybe only a couple of days mm. after the election. Uh, and I remember Helen essentially, she, she kicked her shoes off and she'd curled up her legs on a, on a seat and she was having a cup of tea. And it was quite an unusual thing to see Helen relax like that. But she, she said to us, oh, you know, oh, I said to Peter this morning, oh, I, think I've, I think I've just been through a traumatic experience. <laughs> And I think that's just actually can be how elections really feel. They're such a whirlwind, they have such an intensity to them that in the aftermath, it is quite hard to process elements of it because there's no time as you're going through to be reflective. But to be honest, I haven't found any time after. I kept thinking, oh, summer, I'll think a little bit about what just happened there. Um, uh, and that never, that never happened because of course then over summer I was thinking, uh, about how nauseous and pregnant I felt. And so, it's never had that moment, probably ever will. Um, the next sentence after that one, I'm not gonna read your whole chapter out to you, but the, ne the next sentence after that one is, there is no doubt that 2017 will remain the most extraordinary year of my life. Well, there is doubt about that now. There is there? a bit of doubt about it, yeah. Yes. <laughs> It, w it would be up there, though. It's in close competition with 20, 2018. 2019 also. Have you familiar Tw with 2019? Yes, yes, 2019 has also been. If the pattern but I, continues. Yes, but, <laughs> um, but 20, 20, um, 2018 was when I had my daughter, so that will always probably be my, my key moment in life. Um, oh, Clark proposed to me that year, this year. That's right. I'm sorry, I forgot. That was that too. That too. I was thinking about. I was thinking about recent events, really. But yeah, obviously that was a huge moment. Yes. I've got a lot of questions on that actually, um, <laughs> which we'll get to. Um, uh, Stephen Levine locates the start of the election, uh, or the sort of start of the story, I guess, the precursor to the election, as the resignation of John Key, which. Mm which happened in December 2016. So if we kind of rewind to then, and you, you were a, a list MP. I was. In Auckland. Yes, that's right, central Auckland, yeah. And do you remember that, I mean, I think, I think Parliament was sitting, was it? Was I remember being, there's not much actually about that that I, that, you know, stands out for me, uh, other than this uh, very genuine surprise. Mm. I don't think anyone hand on heart could claim they saw that coming. Yeah, complete surprise. And probably a little, a little seed of, maybe, maybe this is a turning point, a little, a little seed of that, but um, yeah. Because it was, so it was a kind of flash of hope in the Labour Party? Which there happened, a, you know, yeah, there was a flash of hope. I mean, uncertainty as well. Mm. Um, but there, yeah, I do, I do genuinely remember there being a flash of hope, but then, um, it just didn't translate, uh, and, and you know you try very much not to be dictated by polls in your decision making. But there's no question that they certainly give you an indication of whether or not you're tracking where you need to be tracking to realistically be in a, a position to govern. Uh, and that fundamentally didn't change for us. And then, not too long after that, there was David Shearer stood yes. down in Mount Albert, and. Um, suddenly you were in a by-election, which... And I, I actually, that, I found that a really difficult 
crossroads. Because I'd been in Auckland Central for a number of years. Um, I first place I lived was in central Auckland. I'd really dedicated myself to um, embedding in that community and trying to win that seat. And then suddenly David Shearer made this decision to, um, to resign. And I did not want to look like I was taking for granted all of this, the work that had been done by volunteers and by community members who had supported me. I felt like it was a betrayal to move to another seat. There was one thing that probably made a difference for me in that decision, and that was a large chunk of the seat had actually moved to Mount Albert. So thank you, Graylin. <laughs> <laughs> it made me. It just, I'm sure it there's was no a one real, from Graylin in this well, audience. No, it was a real psychological issue for me. Um, but that gave me a, a sense of justification in making that decision. And I sometimes think, had I not decided to run in Mount mm. Albert, mm. would I have then ended up as deputy leader? And then would I have ended up as as leader? And so it's it's. It's one of those moments where I, sliding doors where you just wonder whether or not that, that's what started it all. And, and when you ask yourself that, what do you answer yourself? Probably yeah, I think not. Prob I, think it probably, I think it probably did, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because shortly afterwards, Annette King yeah. decided to stand aside as deputy leader, and then it all went from there, right? You I'm still very sad about that. She was, I was interested though when, um, during the campaign, seeing her as quite a, she was quite a presence on that campaign. She yes. was sort of alongside you. Yes. A sounding board, would that be fair? What's the? Yeah, yeah, I guess that would be how I would, how I would describe Annette. She's, from the moment I've been um, uh, in politics, she's been this huge presence for me because she was one of those people who, who wouldn't just give you political advice. You know, there's plenty, plenty of people in politics when you first come in who are willing to give you a bit of a, a guiding hand, but no, she was, she was interested in your life. She wanted to know that you were happy. She was constantly trying to set me up with people. <laughs> it's very awkward. <laughs> I hope that was yes. before you were together with Yes, Clark. of course, yeah. yes, yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but she, she was always interested in your well-being, and I was very close to her. So when there would, you know, when there would be this uh, commentary around whether or not Andrew might replace her with me, or whether I should be the deputy, whether she should stand aside, um, I know we both found that really awkward. We would talk to each other about it, uh, and particularly because people would also, you know, be a lot of rumour, and, and it was just our way of cutting through it and just making sure we kept our relationship strong. Um, so I knew when she was going to stand aside as deputy, but I didn't know she was going to quit politics. And it wasn't until we were on a phone call together as a caucus where she told everyone on the, on the call, look, I'm standing aside as deputy, but I'm also leaving parliament. And I was gutted. I felt like it was my fault, somehow. Uh, I still feel very sad about that. I would have loved her to be there still. Do you still talk to her? She's in Canberra now. Yes, I talk to her all the time, actually, right. yeah. Um, but from multiple perspectives, obviously it's a close and important relationship for us in Australia, but also, you know, I still consider her um, a friend. Um, skipping forward a bit to 
the whole kind of maelstrom that happened when there was a poll, I think it was Colmar Brunton poll for One News. Yes. Then leader Andrew Little did an interview with TVNZ in which he said, yes, I have considered whether or not I should stay in the leadership, which was a fascinating, very interesting thing to say. You don't yeah. say that just a few weeks mm. out from an election campaign. And he seemed to be at that point telegraphing that he was on the I don't, don't think he was. No? No. It actually started a couple of days before that. Uh, the, the lead up to the, the change in my mind started on the 26th of July. I remember it because it was my birthday. <laughs> and it, it was quite possibly the worst birthday I have ever had. And I've had some really bad birthdays. It's, it, I, I talk a little bit about it in the book, but I was staying out in Tower with a friend because that morning I had to speak at Tower Rotary. They found out it was my birthday and they made me a cake, which I thought was lovely. And then as they announced for me to come forward and cut the cake, they announced that it was actually entirely blue on the inside and they thought this was hilarious. <laughs> I did not. <laughs> and so I finished speaking there and I, I trotted into Parliament with my bloody blue cake. <laughs> and then I had a visit with Andrew to um, Park Road Post and Weta Digital. And when we were in the meeting, um, uh, I saw as I was you know, walking out to the car that we'd got an update on our numbers. We've since forever done internal polling. Every major political party does. You, know, you, you trust your own pulses, they're consistent, gives you a little just idea of where, where you're heading. Um, and I looked at those numbers and I knew I had them at the same time as, as Andrew and they were, they were bad. They were really bad. And I hadn't had a chance to talk to him about it. Um, so when I got back to Parliament, I just sent him a, a text that basically said, you know, I know you will have seen the same, the numbers that we've just got. Um, hang in there, you know, we, you know, we can do this. Just hang in there. It was something Pollyanna-ish <laughs> like that. Um, but I genuinely believed it as well. I just thought the most important thing for us was not to get the speed wobbles, just to stay the course. He then asked if he could, um, he could catch up with me that afternoon. So I was preparing for question time. I had a question that day. And probably about 15 minutes before we went down to the house, he asked if he could see me. So I went in and sat down on the couch and I remember it like it was yesterday. He just said to me, I don't know, I don't know if, if I can do it. Now, I didn't mean, you know, if he, you know, if he had the stamina or the wherewithal to do it. It was just whether or not he could turn the poles around. And he said, I wonder whether or not you might have a better chance than me. Even the fact that he was willing to have that conversation, that he was just completely focused on you know, what was most likely to get us over the line. There was no ego in it. It was incredible to me. But I was also completely caught off guard by it. I just remember saying, oh no. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> And I kept saying that for the next four or so days. So after that poll, then the TV One came out. And I think when Andrew went and did that interview, 
I didn't see it like everyone else. Everyone else thought, oh, well, that's it. He's showing a chink in the armor. Whereas I thought, he's just proven he's human. You know, who wouldn't sit there and think, I wonder if I can pull this off? And yet we expect our politicians to sit there and when confronted with that say, nope, I've never questioned my ability, I've never wondered whether anyone else could do a better job, nope. I mean, of, of course you think like that. I mean, he just admitted it, but that proved to be unacceptable to people, um, which in itself was, was really um, interesting. I don't know if it was so much unacceptable as um, uh, inexorable or something, mm. you know, from that point on. There's only one place to go, you know. And yet everyone, when you've got an interviewer sitting there saying, you're in the 20s, you know, do you ever have a moment where you think you can't do this? And if you sit and say, nope. I mean, just how arrogant is, is that? I mean, you're in a rock and a hard place, but no, in politics, we, ex we expect. Mm. We almost expect arrogance, don't we? That you never, ever let them see you sweat because that, that would be a chink in your armour or, a, or a, a way in for your opposition, and that, and that proves to be true, I guess. And that's, I mean, do you find that you have to do that too, I mean, presumably? Well, I think that expectation probably still exists, I just tend to ignore it. <laughs> <laughs> But you still want to radiate a confidence and a oh, sureness. Absolutely. I mean, there's, 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 it's not being, it's not lying to no. withhold some information. No, no, no. You're, and you're, to be fair, you're absolutely right. And you do have to, you know, of course, in this job, you have to, you have, you have to demonstrate that you're, that you're confident, so that others can have confidence in you. And I remember, you know, for instance, no matter. No matter what questions I had in my mind about what we might be able to do over the, the seven-week campaign period of mm. 2017, mm. I knew that the most important thing was just actually conveying to people that we could do it. People didn't believe that. You know, how are you going to convince them to vote for you if you don't display that level of, of confidence? Um, but I still see a difference for Andrew. You can have that confidence, but also demonstrate that you're a human along, mm. along the way. Mm. In terms of that kind of sureness, I think a lot of people, a lot of people who watch too much politics were sort of blown away by... <laughs> I love that you make it sound like you're watching violent R6ing's too much politics. <laughs> well, it's not healthy, is it? No. You're, you're, actually, you're actually right. I often have people who apologise to me um, for, for not following politics closely. It's, 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 it fascinates me. There are people who, who apologise for that. I don't apologise. It probably makes you a much healthier person. But it, people will also sometimes confess how they vote. Like, they somehow think that I have this little tally in my mind and I know... <laughs> I just have a sense of exactly how people vote because they say, look, I'm, I'm sorry actually vote for you. Um, it's fine. You know, I think you'll find actually in the last election the majority of people didn't, you know, the odds are you <laughs> But Can we I still, still have formed a, a majority government collectively very democratic. <laughs> So there was that um, in terms of 
those of us who are sad and watching too much politics yes. was where I was. All right, sorry. Um, and that first press conference you gave yes. was just, I mean, it's not like it was, uh, it was overly theatrical or anything like that. It was just the absolute assuredness, like just mm. completely hit the ground running. And yeah. um, your colleague and friend Grant Robertson was there willing to help. You didn't want any of that. You know, you just <laughs> straight out and you were kind of, you know, um, I think, you know, name checking some of the, the, the press gallery just yes. instinctively, but it's controlling it. And, and people were impressed with that. And then in very different circumstances, much more sombre circumstances, after Christchurch, again, there was this kind of, mm. and this absolute certainty without any time to prepare. And I wonder slightly on that, some of, some earlier Labour leaders, you could almost see, I felt, you could almost see them hearing advisors mm. and the, the advice you talk about. Yeah. And it's kind of, they hear a question come up, you hear a question, you can just see that moment of, what do I, do I say that? Mm. None of that. How does that, how do you, how do you do that? Can you tell me? <laughs> what do we have to do? Just have to trust your instincts. Uh, and I've, I've always assumed that actually the majority of politicians have relatively strong, strong instincts. Mm. Um, but actually I've, I've watched, I've watched and seen individuals who have had their instincts I don't know if weakens the right word, but you're right, you know, that there's no shortage of advice. And that makes it sound like perhaps we have a whole bunch of professionals around us. Um, I don't mean that actually. In New Zealand politics, we run, all of us run pretty lean machines. Uh, but it, advice comes from so many quarters. You know, it'll be friends and loved ones, people who stop in the supermarket aisle just to give you your thought, their thoughts, you know, there's no shortage of advice. And uh, if you have strong instincts, then, then that just will either further kind of uh, inform the way you feel instinctively about issues, or I think if you get a bit of cognitive dissonance and we think the right thing to do, suddenly you're hearing from everyone else that it's not, mm. I think it can really throw you, throw you off your game. And I've seen that happen to a few, a few people around me. I feel very grateful that I've always feel like I've had a strong instinctive response to issues. That's not to say I ignore evidence or I ignore advice and research, um, but ultimately if I'm in a position where there just is no research and evidence and it just has to be instinctive, then I, I feel confident. My friend Annabelle Lee has a theory, which I want to put to you about, mm. and she says um, that Cinder Ardern is good in a crisis because her dad is a cop and so she had to, growing up, see the dealing with crises. What do you reckon oh. about that? An, an interesting. Interesting theory. Sure, I mean, it, it, of course we are products, we're products of our environment and there is, there is no question I'm a you know, that I've picked up some traits from, uh, from my, my mum and dad. And yeah, my, my dad is a very calm person. Uh, he was a detective in the CIB for 14 years when I was quite, when I was quite young. Um, but I still, I do still remember the way that he handled um, a couple of significant cases. 
Uh, I didn't see him necessarily when he was dealing with media. I would see him on the news, but I didn't really see that side of him. But I did see how methodical he was um, and how much those cases affected him too. So it's hard to know, possibly, possibly. One of the things when we look back on it now, and the, you know, it's always the, the hindsight is, is, is an amazing thing. It seems like it was all meant to be and that it, the surge was always going to happen and so on. But of course, at the time, when you were doing that decision, there was very much the possibility that the way it would play out was, here goes the Labour Party changing yeah. leader at the last moment, yeah. and it was the whole campaign being riven by more talk about not having and was clear a, leadership and all that. And that was a distinct possibility. Yeah. I remember, you know, in the conversations with Andrew, just saying to him, we just, you know, people will punish us if we look disorganised or if we look like we don't have unity. Um, because we've had those experiences before. And of course, keeping in mind, Andrew had been our consistent leader through that term. Mm. And so I was absolutely in the camp that stability and unity was key. And that was why I kept pushing back on Andrew uh, to just hold, hold the course. Uh, but the decision was taken out of my hands. He didn't, he didn't give me a, a choice, he just made a call. He made a captain's call and it was a big gamble. Could have gone absolutely the other way. Ben made the captain's call that it was that we had to try, uh, and I can't imagine the weight of responsibility making that decision. Uh, how that would have felt, particularly given he knew that I was really hesitant about his decision. Mm. Um, but you were kind of left with no choice. I mean, you did have a Not choice, kind of course. Of, you know, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, no, I guess you're right. Um, I could have not accepted the nomination. There, there was that. Mm. But I felt probably the same sense of responsibility that, that he did. You know, he made the call and then he nominated me. Um, and how would I explain not accepting that? Mm. Um, and he could have, he could have quite reasonably, um, you would have forgiven him for then sort of darting off and sitting in a room and licking his wounds but it was kind of interesting how much he sort of yeah. remained. We, we had conversations uh, in the aftermath where he, he said to me, look, I'm gonna, I'm gonna step back a bit, you know, I'm mm. gonna take some time, but then eventually uh, you just let me know what you need. And that's exactly what he did. He took some time and then when he was um, back and we were in full campaign mode, he just said to me, you decide. You decide whether or not you want, where you want me or, or how you would like me to operate through the campaign, which was incredible. And he was so encouraging, you know. We just said the odd text every now and again to check in. Um, so, yeah, an extraordinary person, Andrew. He really is. So after that press conference on that crazy day, then it was very much the, the kind of stopwatch yeah. started ticking and you had those seven weeks. I think you, you had to, first of all, overhaul the yeah. kind of brand. It had to be, a, it had to, you had billboards, you had TV Jamie, ads. Bill, billboards were probably the most awkward thing. Um, because, you know, we had this, you know, Andrew made this call, suddenly new leadership and 
you know, we get out of the building and drive to the airport, and there's all these billboards with me and Andrew. It's this constant reminder that we'd had this, you know, with fresh approach. Um, and I remember Andrew saying to me, well, a genuinely fresh approach now. <laughs> and I, I did, I did, I made a decision that, that day, um, which uh, could have been an absolute disaster, but actually worked out okay. You know, I knew the first question would be, you know, are you going to redo the campaign? Are you just going to stick with the old policies? Are you going to re relaunch? You know, what are you, you going to do? We'd already filmed video ads. We'd already done all of the, you know, the material. We had, the, you know, the billboards take a long time to put up. And it's in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, how in seven weeks will we do redo all of our collateral? And I knew, realistically, we had almost zero time. And so, in that, I think it was in that first press conference, I remember saying, 72 hours, and we'll be back. And we'll be back with um, refresh campaign uh, and all of the, the bells and whistles that come with it. That was ridiculous. Like, that was a ridiculous decision, because not only did it mean redoing our campaign approach, but it also meant actually having a bit of a think about um, all of the policies that would go with it. And that was a big ask. And, and in ter terms of that, because policy was already in, set in place in large part over the years, and did you, what did you do? Did you go, let's go through them and think about the prioritising, the communicating? Yes. What was the process yes. there? Yeah. I already had a bit of a view of things that I really wanted to amplify, climate change being one of them. Um, uh, another, I took a different approach on um, on tax, um, and there were a few other bits and pieces in, in the mix. But ultimately, the thing that I knew we had to prioritise very, very quickly uh, was even what to do with slogans. You know, I remember really angsting because, because you, you, if I look back over the last few, few campaigns that we'd had. There'd always been these kind of grand statements. We'd always done something new, and I felt like somehow we had to capture our policy agenda in five words or less. And I was having a really, really difficult time uh, trying to think um, of something that would grab or harness the momentum, or at least, you know, capture this big agenda that Labour had. Uh, and one of my friends, who's a creative, she got a few people to, together to do a little bit of a, a brainstorm together and she came back to me and she said, I think we should keep it really, really simple. What about let's do this? She said, you do realise that that was the first thing you wrote on your Instagram post when you announced just that you were the new leader? Uh, and I remember at the time thinking, mm, not so sure. And it wasn't until Colin James said to me, remember Kirk's slogan from 1972? Even if I didn't, of course, Colin did. Um, <laughs> he would have been a veteran yes, commentator even yes. by then, wouldn't he? And he said to me, it was just, it's time. And it hadn't occurred to me until then that actually you can capture a mood. You know, you don't have to do a policy description, you know, um, for the future. Or, you know, you could just actually capture a mood. And I think actually hearing that, that was what decided it for me. Mm. Um, you mentioned tax. That was that was that was one one of the changes you made was that you reopened the possibility for capital gains tax to happen in the next term. No, no. Is that what you meant? No, no. So that so Andrew had campaigned on us undertaking a tax working group, 
Yes. And then um, not acting on that until the next term. Yeah. Um, my view was that there was urgency and that we needed to bring that timeline forward and so that if we were going to make changes, we needed to do that in one term. And I stuck to my guns on that for a long time. Um, but I don't know if everyone remembers, I certainly do. There was a really, um, there was a, a kind of a, a tax policy became totally conflated. So while we were only talking about capital gains tax, and making some policy decisions in the midst of a term, National started saying that that meant that we were also going to make income tax changes. And so this, was, this massive uncertainty started bubbling up around our tax policy. And I remember being on the west, you know, driving through the west coast where we were campaigning at the time, and it probably was the real low point of the election for me. Um, because I watched, I was sitting in the car and I watched one of their attack ads and it included, you know, claiming that we were going to make income tax. We'd ruled out no income tax changes. It was completely off the table for us, but this attack ad was raising, that, raising doubt for people. Um, that happened. My, um, uh, I'd mentioned in a, uh, uh, an event in Nelson as well, just off the cuff, that I thought we needed more health investment, uh, more investment in our health services, because my, just that night, my grandfather had been discharged from Waikato Hospital at midnight, um, and he lived in Te Araha, uh, and to me that was just emblematic of, of issues that we had. Of course, the media heard me say that and started trying to find my grandfather, and it absolutely, it absolutely gutted me. I felt, I thought, oh, you know, did I make a mistake in mentioning that? You know, how can I protect my, my family? Um, in the course of all that, my grandmother had a stroke um, and amongst all of that too and was admitted into hospital as well and started a steady decline through, through the election campaign. And I remember all of this happening while we were um, spending these couple of days on the coast I was with Annette, thank goodness. I remember at one stomp, she said, come on, dear, we'll go and get a sausage roll. <laughs> so we sat in this little cafe eating a sausage roll while I contemplated what we would do on tax. Um, <laughs> and it was actually during that journey that I remember calling Grant Robertson and saying, look, let's realistically work through the timelines, because we were going to have this working group, you know, realistically, by the time you finish that, if you are going to make any legislative changes, it's likely not to come into the next tax year anyway, so we can work it through in that term, resolve what we'll do, but not have it take effect till the next election. If I do that, maybe I remove that fear that people had. So that was the call we made, um, and I do think it probably stemmed a bit of a, a, bit of a bleed we were experiencing. Um, oh. the, one, of the, one of the things that, again, that Stephen touches on in the book is the feeling of the campaign, which the is one of those, of the, the vibe, that's right. Um, and that was probably expressed most powerfully in that town hall event just, mm. just up the road here. Um, and uh, Colin James, who you just mentioned, who, mm. who has... Um, who's seen a few rodeos, he, he's, he writes in this book, in mood and numbers, the campaign opening was like none I have seen in my 15 previous elections. It was as if a thick, dark curtain 
had been pulled back to let midday summer light in on Labour. And I'm wondering whether you, that vibe, whether you felt that. Could you, were you, I mean, you must have, right? I think actually that first moment that I thought maybe, you know, maybe we, we you know, we could, we could do this. Uh, it was, well, it, it built a little bit over, over time. The mm. first hint to me was in the first 24 hours where the team came and told me that we'd got this flood of, of little, little donations in. It meant so much to me, you know, seeing that people were sending in $5 and $10, and, but it was the sheer number of them. That was the first hint. Um, the second was when we had a, a policy launch up here in Auckland. The first policy launch we did was around transport, around investment in public transport. And we did it down at the viaduct. And it's a bit ridiculous, but you sometimes think when you put these events on, it's a bit like putting on a birthday party. You know, is anyone going to come? It's a bit um, anxious making. And I remember arriving and just thinking, oh, there's a, a lot of people who have come to hear about trains. Um, and you know, I, th I think actually, and then, and then the town hall, um, you know, I think probably it was just because it was probably a survival mechanism. It was a little piece of my mind in the back of my mind where I would tell myself, you're here to save the furniture. You know, don't feel too much, you are here to save the furniture. <laughs> and then as we steadily moved through, the expectation just kept building and building. Um, and then, of course, over time, I realised I was, you know, I just wasn't here to save the furniture anymore. Yeah, so those, those moments here were probably the moment where I thought uh, it was bigger than that. The debates were kind of, I think, more engaging than they sometimes are. There was certainly a lot of attention because in a way they were two untested leaders going head to head, you know. He had been in an election campaign. He hadn't been the leader in an election. Leader, oh, he had, he, he had, had, yeah. <laughs> well, he, that's right, he got up again. Yes, he got up again. Yes, yes. My apologies. To... He won't mind you forgetting that one. Um, he, he tried to. You know what I mean. <laughs> like, not in recent times. Um, uh, I was going to ask you how, how you, how, how, how much priority you put on those debates. Um, whether or not you felt that they were something that would, could be telling? Um, regardless of how much people focus on them or not, there is no doubt that politicians and commentators absolutely do. Mm. There's a huge amount of pressure around them. And yeah, I absolutely, I absolutely felt that. And Bill, you know, I, I have a huge amount of respect um, for Bill English. and. and I noted that in the chapter that actually I thought this was a, the last election was actually an example of just a good clean fight, you know, it was just a good robust debate and it felt that way whenever we went head to head in those, in those matches as, as well, but there was still this, just this pressure and of course I knew, as much as I tried to avoid the commentary, I knew there was a lot of, you know, there were people who questioned my competency, my, my right to be there, um, my substance, uh, and I felt like those debates would be the place that people would be watching very closely. But also I knew I had extra layers of judgement, you know. Hanks did a lot about, you know, what to wear, 
silly things like that. Um, didn't want to, but just knew that I didn't want that to be a distraction. Uh, and I'd seen enough of politics to know that those things can be. Now, as much as I tried to remove that, um, you, those who observed closely may have noted that on night one, I put my hair up. I thought, I just want to get it out of the way, make sure that I don't have to worry about it being in my face, clear view of, you know, just focused. Man, did I get feedback about that. <laughs> in private Ooh. or in public? No, or emails. And, right. Yeah, no, oh, right. thick and fast. Yep. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so you'll note, I did not wear my hair up again for the rest right. of <laughs> Yeah. It was in, the, in one of those debates, the stuff debate, that Bill English uh, used the Stardust line, which has found its way to the, to the yeah, front page I, of the yeah, book. Yeah, and I didn't really, I don't recall noticing that at the time particularly, but yes. Mm. What did you, what did you, what did, I what did you know, think? I think the reason I didn't notice it is because actually he, he was always a very respectful opponent. And, and even now, I mean, I, you know, I, I know what he was, I know what he was, you know, implying with that statement. I don't take offence by it, um, uh, because just be, having been around him enough, I, I know that he was a person who just didn't really fight politics at that level. But it was part of an attempt to cast you as style over substance, yeah. is the word, or to, you know, mm. that a, a kind of triumph of personality. And with that, and then we had, you know, obviously Mark Richardson's questions on News Hub. There yeah. was that sign in Morrinsville, which is, which, remember, a pretty oh, yeah. little communist. There was yeah. lipstick on it. Did you, I mean, how sexist was the campaign? Do you know that um, <laughs> the, the, the communist, what was it, pretty little She's communist? She's a pretty, pretty communist? Little, pretty, 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 little, pretty, pretty little communist. Pretty little communist. communist. Do you know what I love most about that? It's on a sign. Is, is that they wrote up a little bit more about, this is my recollection anyway, my recollection is they wrote up a little bit more about the gentleman who was holding the sign. Yeah. And it just felt like sweet poetry to me that they talked about the fact that he had a number of children and was therefore a significant benefactor of the working for families. Um, which some might consider a fairly socialist program. <laughs> um, again, I, I guess that just to highlight there that, that I, I didn't really, those kinds of things I didn't, I didn't really pay too much attention to. They didn't, they didn't upset me too much. Um, it was more, if, if people attacked me for, um, you know, not doing enough on behalf of the causes that I feel strongly about, those things I take to heart much, much more than some of the statements uh, that are a bit more uh, on the, uh, you know, a bit more on the surface, I guess, of things. With, there is an exception, though. I mean, I feel that regardless of whether or not I'm in this role, 18 months, two years, three years, I will always feel like I have to prove myself. Always. And even if there'll be commentators who say, right, now, anyone who questions, now's the time where she no longer has to prove herself. She's proven it, she can do it. Uh, that will be until the next time. <laughs> I'll always, always feel that way. Let's, because I'm conscious time is moving, so I'm going to move to election night itself. Um, Watching the speeches, 
And then the media coverage the next day, it was Bill English won the election. Yes. Did Bill English win the election in your head when you took that stage? I mean, it wasn't a victory speech, that's for sure. No. And it didn't feel like victory. Yeah. I wrote three speeches. Yeah. One I did not put a lot of effort into, to be honest, and that was the, that was the, um, the, the clear majority, majority, no need for negotiation speech. I didn't, I didn't put much effort into that one. <laughs> could, you, could you send that to me? I mean, it, it, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I don't even think I typed that one out in full, to be honest. And, and that was because, you know, we, we kept tracking the numbers all the way through. And so I knew where we were likely to land. And so there were really, there were really two, two speeches. Um, I knew, you know, that night I thought, this, this, is, this is tough. I mean, we, we didn't, I mean, no one would want to try and govern with, between three parties with a, with a one-seat majority because all you need is something to go wrong with one person and, and it's over. Uh, and I think actually the fact that Winston Peters waited until the specials came in was a demonstration of the fact that he wouldn't form a government under those terms and actually, to be honest, neither would I. Mm. Mm. So we, it came to the specials and so I just didn't know which way they would go. We tend to do better than National knows, so I knew we'd likely pick up, pick up one, but it was still such an unknown. And so you can see that I was being tentative that night. So in your heart of hearts at that moment, I mean, this is, this is ridiculous to put a number on it, but you, 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 you didn't feel as you did. You felt it was 50-50 after negotiations and after specials. At that point, it wasn't 50-50, was it? No, no, not in my mind. No. Sort of 80-20? Oh, no, I don't. Politics is so fickle. I don't think I'd really... I don't, I don't think I, I'd really, you know, thought about it in those terms. Mm. Um, I just knew it would be hard, yeah. Yeah, and so maybe that's why, in a way, election night almost became the night of the end of the coalition negotiations. It was a very, very odd feeling. Mm. And then that was when you were all crowded together. In my office. In your office. Yes. There was a, one, of the, one of the neatest moments from there. I can't remember who captured it. It might have been Henry Cook. It was, um, there was a cheer that emanated from the <laughs> Labour Party yes, from, from, your, from your office. And yes, it was, aha, it was. we know it's them. But it was, was something else. Yes, there was, they, they were, they were obviously the media were camped out waiting to hear news and they thought we might get a phone call um, uh, earlier um, to let us know what was going on. Uh, and so, of course, when there was this eruption of a cheer, um, they thought, well, that's it, we'd received the phone call. Um, uh, no, it was my, it was uh, some members of my team watching Family Feud. Um, <laughs> I think that was it. It was around that time. I think it was been with you. So massive letdown for the media. <laughs> but I guess it was also very hard for, 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 you know, it didn't seem believable that I would find out with the rest of New Zealand, but that was absolutely the case. I had absolutely no idea which way it was going to go. You could feel it coming a bit in the speech, though. In the speech, I could. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, in the speech, the speech I could. Only, only a moment or two before it was announced. So that, that would be one of, one of the most surreal moments of my life. Election night's built. You can see the tally of the votes. You can see as the percentage builds. You know when the small booths have come in. You know when you've got your major metropolitans. You, 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 you can actually climatise yourself to what's coming. There's no sudden 
victory. Um, it's an emotional roller coaster, but it's also gradual. This was an announcement, um, and that's, that's a rare thing in an election. Mm. Um, I want to ask quickly about social media. It's obligatory to talk about social media. You say in your chapter, we ran targeted, customized video ads over YouTube and Facebook, working hard to make sure the ad someone saw was the most relevant to their lives. And that is before a lot of the stuff that went down with, um, in terms of the misinformation, yeah. allegations against Facebook, and um, Google, YouTube, all that sort of stuff. Offshore companies, we spent a lot of money on them. Public money is spent on those companies. Mm. You spent a lot on the campaign. Is it not, Com uh, uh, is it not a compelling idea to not spend money in the next election on Facebook until they can properly show that they've addressed issues around misinformation, uh, foreign actors in, in, in democratic elections, and extremism? And that's a, a legitimate debate, and there's been, there's been conversation about that. Uh, and my view is, well, we could, you know, you could have um, you know, individual political parties from New Zealand saying, nope, we're taking a stand, we're not advertising. Um, and Facebook may or may not, more than likely, not notice that. Um, <laughs> um, or we could do what we did and try and actually bring a few friends to the table and say, well, actually, collectively, can we try and add a little bit more pressure here? Uh, and not only that, but the Christchurch Call to Action also became a platform that our New Zealand super fund, you may, may or may not have seen, rallied other sovereign wealth funds to the total value of $5 trillion and had all of those funds commit to trying to reinforce what we were trying to do by them collectively saying, unless we see change in line with this Christchurch Call to Action, uh, we will then put, apply financial pressure. So I think $5 trillion might be a bit weightier than the Labour Party's. <laughs> That's true, except <laughs> symbolically, if the Jacinda Ardern led Labour Party were to say, we're not satisfied with what's the progress that's been made on these issues. Yeah. We have determined that in this campaign in 2020, we shan't be spending a dime on yeah. Facebook. Um, yeah, and that's, that's, you know, I've went through a bit of a dilemma. I don't, I haven't had, my recollection is certainly in the last period, I haven't put any paid advertising on my Facebook page, mm. um, which I still insist on running my own Instagram and my own Facebook page. Um, I didn't, other than press conferences, after the 15th of March, we kept live streaming press conferences. But it wasn't until after the Christchurch Court Action was adopted that I felt like I could go back on there. It was odd, uh, you know, I know that might sound mm. silly, but um, I just didn't, I, I, I felt like it was, that there'd been this massive violation of the expectations people have of social media. And we can opt out of it, sure, as you suggest, but I have to accept that there will still be millions of people in New Zealand, that that is becoming the primary place where they get information and news. So it's very hard to opt out of that now. That's where people are choosing to communicate. So instead, 
Um, we have to take the harder path, which is to try and actually make some step change. And then actually to do that, I need to talk to the people who use social media as well. And so that means being there. Mm. Um, I want to, because we're at a writer's festival, I do want to just quickly ask you a few questions about books and writing and I remember reading. Them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, in an age before social media, you were, when you were growing up, what were the, were there, were there books or authors that kind of, that you lost yourself yes. to? I would love to be able to say that as a teenager, um, I read um, a, a, you know, really weighty um, books of note. I loved Nancy Drew. <laughs> I really did. I wonder a little bit, and probably this carried on through my 20s, I, I actually thought, right up until my early 20s, that I would join the police force. I really did. Came very close, actually, when I was working for Phil Goff, to leaving in order to, um, to join. Even started doing the um, training, quite, yeah. un, quite unsuccessfully, I should add. Um, and so maybe that just fed that, that, um, that kind of sentimentality. I, mean, I don't know, but I, I loved Nancy Drew. But when I was about, I'd say it probably would have been about 14 or so, maybe a bit younger, my father, um, and, and to this day, is um, an uh, avid reader of history books, um, and, but also books about Antarctic exploration. And I remember one day when we were on holiday as kids, seeing this book that he was reading and him telling me about it, being so fascinated that I, that I read it. Uh, and that started my great love of Antarctic exploration. So my favorite book is actually um, a book about the endurance. Um, it's a book about Ernest Shackleton, who's always been a hero of mine. Um, and it's written by Alfred Lansing, and it is an incredible, incredible book. Uh, and really tells the tale of leadership in the face of, of opposition, yeah. And how not to die on the ice, which is also very useful. <laughs> how not to die on the ice is It's good. a real metaphor for politics, I think. <laughs> um, how not to die on the ice is to, I think, is to rule out capital gains tax in any future elections, is that? <laughs> Toby, that's actually called coalition and doing the numbers, that one. Unfortunately, I would have done it if I could. Um, and what about, do you have any advice? What, what, are, what, are, the, what are the almost one-year-olds reading these days? What are the... Uh... Yeah, I've learned that um, two things that are, are key. Um, tactile, anything that's a bit tactile, yep. a real go-to and anything that's those thick card books, because I don't know if this is normal, but Neve consumes a large amount of paper. Um, <laughs> and very unfortunately, she's only recently learnt to spit it out, um, which was a very stressful period for me as, as a mum, but uh, her favourite um, things are actually my cabinet papers, um, which I have brought back to Wellington looking very interesting. <laughs> yeah. I'd, like, I'd like this week's cabinet papers printed on thick cards. Yes, that's right. With illustrations. 
with some small zips attached and little <laughs> interesting closures on them. <laughs> yeah. um, it's a good way to express the well-being budget, yes, this little responsive right. design and, 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 and so on. And in terms of writing, I mean, you've written a chapter in this, in this book, obviously, yeah. but you, do you, you, do you, you can't write all your own speeches now. How does it work? Like, how does, for example, the one on whenever it was and shortly after the 15th of March, how does that get written, that speech? It doesn't. Um... It really depends, particularly press conferences. I might have some key points I, I need to make, but the first words uh, that I shared that day um, were just bullet points I, I wrote on the back of my, my diary for the day. Uh, and I just scribbled them out at the hotel um, in New Plymouth before I, before I went into this very surreal... Um, I went and just, it was, a, it was a large convention centre space with one black table and three or four media just lined up in, in front of the black table. And I just sat behind that and felt like I was talking to four people, but I knew there were, at that point, the, there were live, a live cross going on and, you know, New Zealanders were, were pinned to their television sets watching people being wheeled into hospital. It was a very surreal moment. But no, that one was that one was scribbles. I've looked back on that piece of paper since and I can't actually make out some of the words I wrote that that day. Mm. Um, but and typically they're your work, the speech is mostly. Yeah, it, it really depends. Some days you might give three speeches. Mm. Um, and I will sometimes do a mixture of things that I've that have been pre-scripted with support. You know, usually the, the team might write something up if it's a, a particular announcement. But often I'll just do, do them off the cuff as well. Depends on the subject matter. But during that period, uh, the um, press conference after I got back from New Plymouth, that one I wrote on the plane. It, it really depends. Mm. We've got to go. We're running over time. Um, I just want to, so I'll ask you one last question and then we will let you um, get whisked away to South Auckland. And the last question is, when do you think, based on your own experiences documented in here, when would be the best time for Judith Collins to take over at the National Party? <laughs> would it be seven weeks, seven weeks before or...? You know I don't give political advice to other people. <laughs> All right, okay. Well, uh, thank you very much, uh, <laughs> Prime Minister. For... You've been listening to a podcast from the 2019 Auckland Writers' Festival. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.